Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. So that just happened. Uh, Like you, I was up in the wee hours last night watching the election returns in a state of suspended disbelief, I'd say. And, And here I am one day later trying to make sense of it all, as you probably are as well. But the fact is, we are going to have to accustom ourselves to the fact that Donald Trump will become the president and commander-in-chief in January. And that, of course, will have profound implications around the world. So I want to make a pledge to you right now that I will dedicate myself and dedicate this podcast to helping you make sense of foreign policy and world affairs in the era of Trump. There's a lot we don't know right now, uh, but what we do know is that this is going to be a time of uncertainty. And I am going to be with you every step of the way trying to make sense of it all. So to that end, the day after Election Day, I caught up with Heather Hurlbert of the New America Foundation. Heather was actually the very first guest of this podcast a while back, and I was glad to reconnect with her as we start a new era of American foreign policy. Heather and I have a pretty wide-ranging discussion about the implications of a Trump presidency for American alliances, for Syria, for the Iran nuclear deal, and for the lives of some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. We kick off discussing the kinds of personnel choices that President-elect Trump must take in the coming weeks, which will be a very early sign of what kind of foreign policy president he will be. So before we begin, I should just say that I imagine that this election is is confusing to a lot of people, concerning for many people. If you have anything you want to get off your chest, do feel free to, to email me. I would love to hear from you if it's cathartic at all, uh, if you have any questions about anything please don't hesitate to email me. Just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact link and I'll get back to you. I promise I will. It might take a little while, but I'll do it. I think that's important to have these kind of conversations in these kinds of times. And now here is Heather Hurlbert of the New America Foundation, which was where I first worked actually, first job out of college. Here she is. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, there's been speculation all the way along that um, a number of, of Republicans, you know, maybe not the ones who had been most vehement about Never Trump, but some of the quieter ones would either because Trump would make them offers they couldn't refuse or because they would feel it was their duty to, to go in and, and basically try to help steer, um, you know, that, that Trump would end up with a better or a more experienced cast of characters than it, than it seemed on the foreign policy side. And in, in fact, there was an article about the transition team more generally quoting 
someone close to Trump who said, look, you know, we're not really paying that much attention to the transition team because we figure when we win, we'll be able to get anybody we want. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, you know, the, the federal government pays for both campaigns to have transition teams starting in the summer. And there was this speculation that the Trump team hadn't necessarily done anything much very serious and that it would be sort of ramped up from nothing the day after the election. Now here we are. And indeed you are, you are starting to hear, hear rumors that, um, you know, some, um, former Bush appointees who did not sign the never Trump pledges looking to be asked to play, Mm -hmm. to play roles. Mm So, so I think, um, so I mean, people like, could, like who, like, like what kind of names? Um, well, you know, I mean, I think the one, the one that, that people are trying to console themselves with today is Steve Hadley, mm-hmm. who was, um, W's national security advisor in the second term is, um, is very widely respected in the DC foreign policy establishment, um, is not, um, is not one of, he's not a neocon, um, he's, you know, he, and he's not a, he's not a neocon, but he's also not, he's kind of a classic small C conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, he's somebody who kept a quite low profile actually has been involved in some bipartisan, um, thinking about what to do in the middle East. So, so, you know, that's, there's that. Um, but at the same time you have, you know, Newt Gingrich and John Bolton and, um, some of the mm-hmm. sort of Islamophobia crew, swirling around. So, I mean, so I think, yeah, it, I mean, it seems that like the, the tone, for example, of, 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 uh, Trump's foreign policy could pretty profoundly be set by some of his personnel choices, particularly say, you know, the secretary of state, you know, the, you know, if, the, if it's a secretary of state, you know, Bob Corker, who is a, a Republican from Tennessee, who's chair of the Senate foreign relations committee and not like a crazy guy. Um, you know, he's, he's a conservative, he's a Republican, but you know, he's within the fold. Um, that sets, you know, one tone. If it's like a John Bolton or a Newt Gingrich as Secretary of State, then, you know, all, all bets are off. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Corker. I think he's someone who sort of o- occupied a very careful position. He didn't say too much publicly about Trump, but he did send a number of his staff people to work on the campaign and, and the transition, including mm-hmm. a, a lawyer who had served on the Foreign Relations, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, so Corker is somebody else I would, I would watch closely. And, and again, sort of ideologically, what's interesting about that is that, you know, Corker is no, Corker is not a Rand Paul style. um, Like realist, neo-isolationist kind of. I hate using the word isolationist because somebody who owns, um, you know, who owns properties in as many places and has investments in as many places in the world as Trump does, you can't describe that person as an isolationist. Corker is definitely a realist but he's not, he's not a, a retrenchment mm-hmm. guy per se, but nor is he a Lindsey Graham, um, John McCain style neoconservative. So, so that's again, another, another interesting signal. I mean, something else that I would watch for is, so if you're, if you're Trump, you're now, you're going to have to ask yourself, what do I truly value? And where am I willing to sort of give ground to the Republican Party doing things the way it likes to do them versus what am I really determined to put my stamp on? And, you know, first term presidents usually focus on the domestic. And on the one hand, everything else about this campaign has been different. So why wouldn't that be different, Mm -hmm. too? But I do think you could one could also imagine a world where Trump says, "Okay, fine, 
let's put, you know, Corker in, he makes everybody calm or, you know, whomever. And, um, and I will sort of do a, a slightly pared back version of, of kind of Republican normal, if you will. Um, and I will focus my energy on some of the domestic things I said I wanted to do. I mean, on the other yeah. hand, I, I, I also have to say that Trump's obsession with the idea that foreign governments are ripping us off is deep and profound. It goes back his entire adult life. So it wouldn't surprise me, you know, anyone who's thinking about taking a job, anyone who's thinking about taking a big foreign policy job in a Trump administration, you know, the prize is we go over Republican Senate, you're going to get confirmed. It's going to be easy. You're going to have four years. You're going to have a mm -hmm. whole lot of stuff where you're going to be left to mind the story yourself. But every now and then you have to expect Trump storming in and saying, you know, what do you mean? Well, we're and and isn't this sort of where um, personnel this time around matters more than it might otherwise, because you have uh, a, a man coming into the White House who is, you know, so inexperienced in, in foreign policy, just doesn't have um, the kind of, you know, background or statesmanship or, or, or anything that, that one might expect um, a, a president to have that their advisors this time around probably might wield more influence than in previous administrations? Well, I think you have to, we have to remind our, I mean, you know, in, in my adult lifetime, we've had a, a first term president who was a governor from Texas and seemed profoundly incurious about the world. We had a first-term president who was a governor from Arkansas, who on the one hand was profoundly curious about the world, but on the other hand had had, you know, relatively little exposure and experience. So um, it's not clear to me that actually Donald Trump is the, is the president least experienced in the ways of mm -hmm. foreigners, if you will, that we've ever had. Now, what does happen, um, and that, ha you know, um, George W. Bush had Condoleezza Rice, who he relied on very heavily. Bill Clinton had um, Warren Christopher, whom he relied on very heavily in the first term. And so this sort of an interesting question is, does Trump follow that model and bring in, you know, a Hadley or potentially somebody else a little younger, but equally experienced who he, who he relies on? Or, you know, is he relying on Newt Gingrich to, to, and John Bolton to teach him about foreign policy? Is he relying about the guy who is he relying on the guy who, you know, made up his resume at the Model UN to tell him about national security policy? That's going to tell us a lot. Um, so I, I wanted to get your take on what you think the sort of the, the, the first hundred days foreign policy wise look like for uh, the a Trump administration. I mean, he's already said a few things that he'll do, you know, tear up the Paris Accord, the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, and you know, so we have like, I think, some indication of, of where he's heading. Um, but again, he is like so unpredictable that it's hard to know exactly when he means when he says he's going to tear up the Climate Accord or, or what exactly his priorities will be. I mean, do you have any sense? Do you have any sort of gut instincts or feelings about what to expect the first hundred days around the world? This guy is completely or almost completely transactional. So any given issue, you're wondering what the first hundred days are like. Your your guide is what does it get him and what could he trade it for? Um, there's clearly one faction in the Republican Party that's going to be very, very happy if Trump unsigns the Paris, Paris Climate Accord. 
um, which because it's not legally binding, I think will be quite easy for him to do. Um, I, I haven't, I have not checked this, but I'm pretty sure he can just announce he's unsigning it. Mm-hmm. There's um, like a formal, it'll take like three years to like formally withdraw from it, but he could simply ignore its strictures. Right. Um, or announce that he's ignoring its strictures, announce that he's throwing out the plans the Obama yeah. administration put in place to. Now, on the other hand, you do have another swath of the Republican Party that um, recognizes that that was causing it some harm with some constituencies that it really wanted. So, you know, I, to me, if I'm Trump, you know, that's one I probably do because it, it's an immediate it's an immediate bone to my base. Um and but then that does sort of set him up for a fight with with another another portion of the Republican Party. It's instructive to compare that. You know, you tear it up on the first day. There is no practical consequence unless you sort of consider long term climate health to be a practical consequence. But aside from that detail, um, I'm being sarcastic. Um, there's no practical consequence. On the other hand, the Iran deal, which many, many Republicans urged Trump to say he would tear up on the first day. It's interesting. Last week, he gave a closing argument presentation to a group of conservative American Jews, and he notably did not say he would tear up the Mm -hmm. Iran deal on the first day. And, you know, tearing up the Iran deal on the first day has very real consequences for regional relations and for relations with Europe. Um, And so I don't I don't think he's going to do it. You don't think he's okay. Well, this is this is helpful to hear. I mean, because there is, you know, the the scenario in which you know he doesn't tear up the Iran deal, or another way of tearing up the Iran deal is having Congress pass sanctions on uh, Iran, which could poison the deal to the point where maybe Iran might want to start its nuclear program again, and then you get into this like the the sort of same cycle we had before. Um, yes, that's what that second is what I expect to happen. I think you will have. You will have some very motivate some some Republicans in Congress who will be very motivated to do that, and Trump will throw his hands up and say, "Yeah, be my guest. Go ahead, see what you can pass." And then we'll see number one how long the Democrats in the Senate can hold together and hold those off, uh, and then I guess number two we'll see how long the filibuster lasts, whether they can, you know, even if they can hold together, whether whether that's meaningful. But but yeah, no, the way the way that the Iran deal is at risk. It's not from Trump officially tearing it up, but from Congress passing mm-hmm. sanctions and other bills which just take away Tehran's take away Tehran's political space to abide by the agreement. Um, uh, on Syria, I mean, it, it seems to me that like probably the most practical consequence of of like a Trump uh, presidency for Syria is is simply to let sort of you know Russia run roughshod. Uh, over the the remaining rebels and basically help secure the Syrian government's victory in in Syria uh, without much interference from from the U.S. I mean, do you see that as like a likely outcome in over you know in the next several months? Well, I was going to say one. The the first question is whether Russia sort of moves ahead and does that and just tries to get it out of the way before Trump comes to office. So Trump comes to office. The map of Syria looks very different. He looks around and says, hey, guys, it's a fait accompli. Here's what we're going to do going forward. Uh, That's one possibility. Another possibility is um, the Obama administration has quietly and incrementally been ramping up some pieces of its activity, um, covert activity in Syria, um, as well as obviously what it's doing in Iraq. And, you know, frankly, I think you could also see uh, uh, Trump coming in, and again, depending on who comes in as defense secretary, 
basically deciding to leave what we're doing more or less in place. Um, deciding, you know, looking at the, the terrible set of options. I mean, for all the criticism that has been made of President Obama's Syria policy, including by me, there aren't really a lot of other good options. And so it may very well be that Trump's Syria policy ends up looking an awful lot like Well, well can, can I ask you, you know, from a Trump perspective, what is the bad option of disengaging? Like, like why is that bad from a Trump perspective? Um, because your advisors will explain to you that that gives ISIS and Al Qaeda more territory in which to plan um, and launch attacks in Europe and the U.S. And you will understand that you don't want that, that you really can't be having terrorist attacks that are um, pointed at you while you're president. So you will be you, you know, the, the national security apparatus is very good at this. And they will say you now have this responsibility when they're, you know, the next Orlando will be your fault. And the next Orlando, they will say, is being masterminded or egged on by somebody sitting in rural Syria or outposts of Iraq. And you have the power, they will say, to disrupt this with drones and special forces. And I, I'll be astonished if Trump doesn't say, heck yeah, let's keep right on doing that. So uh, uh, the flip side of that question is, you know, as you said, he, he says, heck yeah, let's keep on doing it. But he does it in a way that is perhaps less respectful of, of you know, international humanitarian law, the laws of war than the current president uh, is. I mean, are there presumably you would hope you would expect that like the institutions of national security would would kick in and would would sort of, you know, abide by the law in, in places where perhaps he might not feel so constrained. I mean, do you think that that like sort of the, the weight of the office uh, might constrain him in ways that his rhetoric on the campaign trail has not? There is within the national security bureaucracy, a ferocious concern with abiding by the law um, where it gets interesting, as we know from the Bush administration is what your interpretation of the law is. And so I, the question that I think will be key there is how much are the people coming into the top jobs interested in, and this is a quote of something Trump said on the campaign trail, rewriting the law so that what we want to do is legal. Um, and if you have, I mean, if you think back to what we saw in the Bush White House, you had folks um, in Dick Cheney's office, but also in in key positions in defense and justice who were constantly pushing the lawyers to go to the edge, go to the edge, go to the edge. And if this administration winds up appointing a bunch of people who share that view, which I think there's a very good possibility it will, then you will have those kinds of fights all the time. It seems that another sort of area of concern uh, for the future stability of the world is going to be Eastern Europe, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. It's not not what one would have expected several years ago that, that this is going to be like a, a global hotspot. But I mean, to what extent um, do you think that the countries of, of Eastern Europe and the Baltics are are nervous right now that you know the the guarantor of, of safety won't be the same guarantor that they've relied on over the past you know decades? Oh, they're horrendously nervous and, and have been for months. And anyone who, who interacts with, with people from those countries is, is aware of, of how much, how much concern they have. And, you know, the sort of immediate consequence will be on, and this, I have to say, this will not be all on president Trump. 
it has increasingly been the case that the sanctions on Russia were difficult to sustain from the European side. Um, you know, Britain moving out of the EU space will make that even harder. Um, the, you know, French election next year where you have Marine Le Pen running and you also have Nicolas Sarkozy who has shifted into a very pro-Russian pose running. Um, so you're, you're going to have, you're just going to have very little political will to sanction, to, to sanction Russia in, in ways that would actually be, be effective. So that's kind of point one. You know, point two is um, it will be very clear to the Russians that Ukraine will remain, you know, a buffer state, if not actively revert toward being or be permitted to revert toward being a satellite of Moscow. So that'll be that'll be the second practical consequence um, with, you know, pretty dire consequences for the areas of Ukraine where they're still hot fighting. You know, the challenge comes, I think, um, with the Baltic states, uh, where there are U.S. troops moving through on rotation, um, do, it does a President Donald Trump actually step up and say, "No, you know what? We're not going to do that anymore." Again, um, that seems unlikely. It seems unnecessary if he and Putin have the quality of understanding that um, you know recent events would would lead you to believe that they do. So you you don't have to. You don't have to do anything very explicit to to give Putin a fair amount of reassurance, and you will you will have enormous levels of fear in Poland and the Baltics, yeah. which will lead to which will lead to increased aggressive behavior on their part, at least by some parties and officials, which you know has the potential to start a really problematic cycle. Uh, I, I guess one thing that I'm, I'm sort of trying to like wrestle my, my, my head around, um, you know, day after the election is, I guess the extent to which, um, the whole sort of liberal international order, which we've grown accustomed to, um, which is, you know, led by the United States, created by the United States is now, um, just in, in question. Um, you know, the, the patchwork of, of treaties and agreements, and you know the United Nations itself um, is is under you know threat that this is the the predictability that that order has ensured is no longer you know a fact of nature in in international relations. I mean, how I guess how worried are you just about the the, the foundational stability of of world order at this point? Well, there have been reasons to be worried about the foundational stability of world order for, for a while now, because you had a number of powers that felt that the way it was set up and structured didn't serve their interests. Um, and it is now the case that the United States is run by uh, an, a, a leader and um, has a, you know, a plurality of American opinion that was willing to sign up to the idea that the international order doesn't serve American interests. And, you know, moreover, and it's, it's easy to mock this and make fun of it and point out all the ways that it's fallen short or that's been used to oppress people. But there was also the idea that an order in which the U.S. was the guarantor of stability for others was a, a net plus for the stability and prosperity of the U.S. And that, that is the, the, the change, um, you know, that we are, that we're now seeing that that's being called called into question. Um, so 
I'm very concerned about that. But again, you know, it's it's wrong for Americans to think that by electing Don, like that we just did this unilateral thing unknown in the history of the world. You know, in, in some ways we are we are right now catching up to where other global great powers are um, or we are reverting. Maybe a way to put it is Trump represents a bit of a reversion to the norm in how global great powers behave and how they how they see themselves on the world and, and the last 70 years has been in, uh, an aberration of the norm? Um, yeah, and in that the last 70 years represented an aberration in United States power being so extreme compared to other countries' power. I thought you were a liberal. <laughs> I am a liberal. Uh, but I, I mean, it just so I am a realist in the sense that I believe it looking, in looking at facts the way they present themselves and not in the way that I wish they presented themselves. You know, see, that's. I'm a, I'm a constructivist. I, I, I think I agree with the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one other set of issues that I want to be sure we mention. Yeah, please. Um, especially because this podcast did get its start doing doing development issues. Yes. Um, and that is, you know, something that um, Hillary Clinton really made her signature at the State Department uh, that Barack Obama put a fair amount of thought into, and and his team was quite frustrated that nobody was very interested in in what they were doing. Uh, in the developing world, um, and something that, um, you know, just a very small symbol of that, something that Republican presidents love to do on their first day in office, which is reinstate something called the global gag rule. Yes. Explain, means, explain what that is. Yeah. Which means that around the world, um, agencies, um, public and private that receive us support for their, um, health programs, um, are not allowed to, are not allowed to provide abortion or contraception services or even talk about them. Mm -hmm. Hence the name gag rule. And, you know, we, we love when we talk about foreign and national security policy to focus kind of on the high geopolitics, you know, what does it mean? The Kurds versus the Shia versus the Turks, but that global gag rule is going to affect the lives of as many women and families as anything else Donald Trump does his first hundred days in office. And their their lives are always on the line when Americans vote. And it's not something that we ever talk about or think about, but it's a, it's a very real, it's a very real consequence of what happened last night. I, and it's worth pointing out that this, we're not talking about like NGOs that, um, you know, that, that, work specifically in reproductive health. These are large NGOs, which have lots of programs around the world, some of which might be in uh, reproductive health. And now, uh, if they continue sort of mentioning abortion as an option for family planning, all their funding for every other, uh, everything else they do around the world would be in jeopardy. I mean, that's, right. so that's, for example, yeah. supposing you run a program that deals with, um, um, rescuing enslaved or trafficked people, which is something that a lot of conservatives really strongly support. And you, one of the things that you do is you run a clinic for people that you have brought out of trafficking and slavery. And maybe one of the things that you want to do is offer them reproductive health services to help them cope with whatever they've experienced while they were in captivity. And suddenly you can't do that anymore. And, and I mean, this kind of goes to, to a more fundamental question. It's like, what does U.S. development assistance look like if the president just ran under a slogan of American first? You know, America first. Like, like, what happens to USAID? You know, what happens to to some of these, you know, government agencies that, you know, that, 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 that do, you know, really important anti-poverty work around the world? And it's, it's 
you know, it, it's, it's tough to see. I mean, it's tough to suss out at this point. I mean, I think the most, you know, my sort of optimistic scenario is that honestly, because USAID is so small and is such of a, that it will, it will somewhat go, go under the radar. And when Trump brings in, you know, when some of these sort of more experienced Republicans that we were talking about at the, at the beginning of the podcast come in, um, some folks will say, look, you know, this is a tool of our diplomacy and we need it. And from time to time, Trump has wanted to present himself as a champion of people in need. And, and so, you know, USAID is not going to disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, there has been like a bipartisan consensus uh, to a certain degree on foreign aid that at least, you know, it, it's something we ought to do. I mean, it's been eroding a little bit over the past few years, but it's just kind of one of those issues. Uh, one of the few remaining issues that, you know, the Republicans and Democrats tend to agree on. Uh, and I just wonder if that can survive. Yeah. Again, not with a bang, but with a whimper would be my prediction. Uh, well, uh, Heather, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Good to talk. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Heather. And, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, these are uncertain times and I'm pledging to you to do what I can to help offer some clarity. And frankly, I think we're going to all have to process this together ensemble. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.